Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I'll be reading uh, from verse 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There, okay, there we go. We have been in a series on the, the, fundamental, the fundamental beliefs that, are, that we stand for here in our church, and we're in part six. And we believe that salvation is holy by grace here in this church. Um, if you grew up in the church, in a, in a solid Bible-believing church, I hope that you are very familiar with this Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And maybe, if, if, you, if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you don't, this may be verse maybe new to you. But if you grew up in the church, it's a very famous verse, this chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through, uh, <clears throat> through faith, and not, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. A very famous verse, and it's one that that often churches um, have their their young people learn and memorize. Should, and but what most people haven't ever done is they haven't really looked at some of the verses that come before it. And actually, what's happening here in this ver- in this passage is 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 this is this concentration of this question of boasting. Now look. Our church absolutely stands on this teaching. This teaching that salvation is holy by grace. But the implications of this are very vast and what, what kinds of people it produces. And one of the things it does is if you're a grace-filled community, it produces a quality of humility that I want to talk about today. And it has to do with this question of boasting that it says in verse 9. Right? And so I want to get this in three parts. Um, Part one, salvation by grace versus boasting and being dead. That's the way the Bible describes the norm of fallen life, being dead in our trespasses. Salvation by grace versus boasting and being dead. Part two, I'm going to talk about humility and mercy toward others. Humility and mercy toward others. And part three, the strange beauty of a grace-filled community which is the kind of community which I believe we are becoming, and all the more we'll do so as we um, drink in the gospel and allow grace to be, fill us more and more and more. Right? Um, part one, salvation by grace versus boasting and being dead. I mean, there's no way I can, I can explicate this whole passage. First, It's an incredibly rich text, but I want to make just a couple points. One, you notice verse eight. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's, he says that twice. That's not, when you get to verse 8, he's already said that. By the way, you, by grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved. Not by how good you are, not by the works you've done, 
Not by the hoops you jump through. Not by the church and all these things. Even what you believe and your faith, is that's not a work. Faith itself is not even a work. So that's, that's just one. But let, let me take you to verse 1. Verse 1, here's what he says. And it's very kind of dramatic. And, um, and this is the way he puts it. This is sometimes the way Paul talks. Verse 1, you were dead. He didn't just say you were bad. He didn't just say you had some kind of bad habits. He didn't just say you had certain sin problems that you had some issues with. He says you were dead. <laughs> That's the word he uses. And it's a very odd sense. I mean, before I became a Christian, I, I woke up, I ate, I slept, I talked. It seems like I was alive, but not according to God. Not according to the, the, the perspective of the scriptures. Before you knew Jesus Christ through the gospel, you were dead in sin and trespasses. That's, that's the description. And, it, and then it goes, you were dead in, sin, in the trespasses and sins in which you walk. And then he goes on to say this, following the course of this world, following the power of, of the prince of the power of the air. You know who that is? You know who the prince of the power of the air is? The devil. Before you met Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses. You followed the course of the world. Whatever is just normal in this world, you just followed it. And that's how we are. There's just a kind of normal course of the way our culture works. And our culture does not normally follow Jesus, and pretty much it does it. The worldly culture, by the way, this is true even in cultures that say that Christianity is dominant. The course of the world is normal. Money, my success. This is normal to the course of the world. Um, we have to have a boast of who we are that makes us good people. So if I, if I make good money and I have a nice job and my marriage hasn't fallen apart and my kids are, are turning out nice and I have a good education and my education sets me apart against all those people who are ignorant and don't know anything, then, then I'm a good person. That's the, cor the normal course of, the, of this world. And you know what all that is? According to the, the Bible, it's following the devil. According to the Bible, that's being dead in our trespasses. All this is synonymous. Dead in your trespasses and sin. Following the normal course of the world. Following the devil. <laughs> that's all synonymous points. And then he goes on to say, and you were of the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience are just normal unbelievers. All this is the normal state of people. Um, when, when people like me, you know, you're a pastor or a theologian, say the world has fallen, this is what we mean. <laughs> it's not just that the world is just kind of bad, or that we're, it's that when you are normally good, the goodness in us is bad. <laughs> That's what we're saying. And I want to connect it to what, what Paul says in verse 9. He says that if you fully understand that you've been saved by grace, It'll do something, you will stop thinking about your works, and it'll change something about your boasting. It'll reshift your boasting. In fact, you won't have a boast. That if you know that you've been saved wholly by grace, no one will boast. All those people who really believe, you won't boast. But this is a real, I think, a, a key indicator of fallenness, of what theologians and pastors like me call depravity. Um, all human beings need some form of something that we look to in ourselves, and typically it's, it's out of our works. And when we see this thing, this is what Paul calls our boast. We point to this and say, hey, this is how I know I'm a good person. This is how I know I have worth in this world. And by the way, you, we all do this. Um, and if you're not sure what your boast is, all, this is, this is how, um, let me just give you a little bit of, 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 of a probing question. If you fail in this manner, you don't have this anymore, you will feel like you're worthless. <laughs> you will feel like you really are nothing. <laughs> and, um, and it's different for different ones of us. So for, if you commit a certain particular sin, so let's say if you, if you cheat on your husband... <laughs> So if you have sex with somebody who's not your husband, 
you would hate yourself so much that you would know you deserve hell. So maybe that's it for you. So you have to be a good enough... So you know what you're saying when you, when you believe that? You're saying, I'm a good enough person... I'm a good enough person that I would never cheat on my, on, on, on my spouse. And if I ever cheat on my spouse, then I know I really suck. And you know what, you, 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 know what the, you know what the flip side of that is? That's your boast. Your boast is I'm a faithful husband or wife. And on that basis, you know you're still a decent enough person. But you know what you also think? Do you know what the flip side is? It, all the people who don't do that, you know what you do? You think they're bad. And you look down on them. That's your boast. I'm better than them. Because that's how I know I'm still good. But if you failed on this, you'd hate yourself. This, this is what's going on verse between verses 1 through 9. Chaz passes a normal course of the world, and then the boasting issue when, that Paul hits in verse 9. Let me, let me put it a little bit differently. Okay, um, it's, okay that's, that's a little dramatic. <laughs> it's a little dramatic about this. How about my kids turn out well? So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make all you parents feel, I'm, I'm, I'm attacking all you parents. So, okay, by the way, so all you singles are like, oh, well, you're, okay, but, but one of the reasons, all you guys who are single and don't have kids yet, one of the reasons why your parents sometimes get all twisted and bent out of shape about you is because you have to turn out a certain way so they'll know they're a good person. You are a part of their boast. And if you're a mom and dad, Oh, you know we're all like this. (laughs) We're all like this. If our kids don't turn out a certain way, then we're not good people. That's our boast. That's our righteousness. Right there. And you know what Paul is saying? It's not. If you believe in Jesus, you're never going to stand before God and say, well, my kids turned out pretty good. Before the world, but you're still saying that to yourself deep down. That's your boast. That's why we are damnable, actually. And this thing is not just in individuals, in, in me. This is the, that's the boast of the me. Actually, there's a boast of the we. And it gets actually really strange. The boast of the we even extends toward how we look at our faith. There are people who are saying, I'm a Christian, and because I'm a Christian... Um, I have the right beliefs about God, and I, I've changed some of my behaviors because I found out those are sins. And then there's a bunch of people out there, they don't have the right beliefs about God, and they've still got all those bad things that they do, and they, and they even know they're bad, okay? But they don't care. And I'm better than them because I'm a Christian. You know what? I'm a Christian. That's my boast. Let me, let me even just, just, just time out there. If being a Christian is a part of how you know, I'm a Christian, that's the terminology, and I go to church, and I have the right doctrines, and that's how, that's, even that isn't quite right. Because if you set, if you compare yourself to other people, they're not a Christian, I'm a Christian. This is how I know I'm a good person, and they're not a good person in this way. And so you separate yourself from them, and you look, you even, at various, come on, admit it. You even look down upon them. And then when you see evidence of they're not being a very good Christian, and this happens in the church all the time. Um, people come in the church, and then lots of different people in the church say they're Christians. Right? Probably most of the people who are regular in the church, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. And they're sincere about that. But then, you know what we do? Then we start to size up who's a good Christian. <laughs> or who's a real Christian. And then what do we do? We look at behaviors. I've got this behavior and you don't. I'm more of a real Christian and you're not. And we can't help but look down on that person. You know what we're doing? We're boasting. That's what we're doing. And you know what Paul calls this? This is the normal behavior of the people who are dead. (laughs) This is normal, demonic righteousness. This is the way all the world works. And the, the boast of the we is our community, the Christian community, we're the better people, and those people are the, are the bad people. And do you realize this is why the whole world's messed up? I don't know if you realize that. This is the fundamental, it's not, what makes the world really messed up is not just that some people are drunks, or some people are violent, 
Or some people are greedy. Okay, that is bad. Okay, those things are bad. But actually, that's not really what makes the world deeply messed up. What makes the world really deeply messed up is that we base our identity on a boast of our righteousness from our works. And then we form communities based upon this boast. And then we look down upon other communities that can't have a different boast, because that boast is the wrong boast, of course. And then, and then we hate them, or we're afraid of them, or we're suspicious of them, or we keep them out, or whatever it is, we're better than them. That's what makes the world messed up. It's in the news every night. There are people in this world who will actually strap bombs on other people or on themselves, and because they are part of a group that has one boast about God and the nature of their humanity, and then these other people, they got the wrong boast. And this is really interesting because they accuse us, they, it's the Christians. They say, the West, the West is bad, and the West is bad because you're Christians, and you're, hence you're decadent, which is really weird. Whenever I hear that on the news, I always think that's strange because I'm like, the West isn't Christian. It's like, we're, we stopped being Christian. The West is secular and atheist, and the Christians are actually weirdly embattled in our culture and actually disdained in our culture. They don't know that, though. But nonetheless, it's the same issue. And Christians, we're, we are guilty of it too. There's a difference between having a boast in Christ and having a boast in being a Christian. And if you know that you're a real deep Christian, fundamentally, you know that in and of yourself, you're a devil-following, damnable person who boasts in your righteousness. And the only thing that keeps you from hell and from totally falling apart into a dysfunctional person is Christ alone. Nothing new. That's the grace part. And you know, this is a very, very hard thing to wrap our mind around. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say it to you in this kind of heavy and hard way. The Bible says it in a heavy and hard way. So I'm just trying to you to feel this. Let me tell you a story. Um... <laughs> You guys know that I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Tim Keller, of course, right? Because um, I actually even learned this from Keller. Keller says that when he he just has to something has to spill out of him, he goes to C.S. Lewis. So it's just C.S. Lewis is like his one of his favorite Bible teachers. Just spills out of him. So when something just needs to spill out of me, I'll just I'll just go. I need an illustration. I'll just go to Keller. A <laughs> um, number of years ago, I was listening to a message from Tim Keller, and he was talking about when he was actually rather young, and when he was in seminary. And when he was in seminary, so I don't know if you know this, different denominations have different, you know, flavors about their doctrine. Of course, you all know that. I don't know if you know this, but if you, that there is a connection between the doctrine of predestination and salvation holy by grace. I don't know if you know that. A lot of people find this idea that we're predestined by God to believe that's very offensive, <laughs> Because we go, okay, that means you, we're robots. It doesn't mean we're robots. That's not what the Bible means, okay? But a lot of people think that. And even among Christians, there's disagreement about that. And so, when he went to seminary, Gordon Conwell Seminary, he did not believe in this predestination stuff. And the people who believe in this doctrine, typically they're called Calvinists, or they're called Reformed. And by the way, if you notice, that's the name of our church. We're the Christian Reformed Church. That's our doctrine, too. And so, yes, the Bible teaches predestination, but it's not just that the Bible teaches predestination. There's a deep connection between grace, salvation, and grace, and how God has predestined us to be his children. And there are some Christians who don't buy this. And at, so there was a gathering of seminary students, and some of them didn't buy into this doctrine. Keller was one of them. He was like saying, these Calvinists are nuts. Okay? Um, and... But they're at this gathering, and at this gathering, the, the, there was a special guest, and he was, a, he was a reformed Calvinist pastor who's famous at the time. He's still not as famous now, but he was back then. His name is R.C. Sproul. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's, he's a pretty old guy now. And he was a special guest at this dinner, and there was a bunch of, of, uh, of seminary students at this house. So it wasn't, you know, at this form. It was a very kind of informal gathering. And you guys know what it's like. People talk. And if you guys go to somebody else's talk, you would talk about things like football or or the latest news things, but if you gather a bunch of seminary students and they talk, 
they sometimes talk about theology, okay? It's, I know it's kind of nerdy, but that happens. And somehow, this predestination issue came up. And one of the women who was there said, I don't believe in that. I don't, she's like, come on, I don't, I, you know, she's like, that would mean we're robots. And R.C. Sproul, being a good Reformed Calvinist pastor, said, well, that's not right, but he didn't say it that way. He didn't say, going, hey, you're wrong, you're, you're not, that's not what he said. He did something very interesting. He got down on his knees before her. And he says, how did you become a Christian? And she said, well, I cared about God, I, the question of God, so I went to church. And there I heard the gospel and I believed in it and became a Christian. He said, oh, okay, that's good. He said, so what was it that made you care about the issue of God? He's like, he's like, don't you have any friends and, you know, who are pretty cool people? She's like, yeah, and who don't believe in Jesus? She goes, exactly. My roommate's wonderful. <laughs> and my roommate doesn't believe in Jesus and doesn't go to church and doesn't care about the questions of God. He's like, hey, exactly. He said, so how is it that you, what made you interested in something about God and then go to church and then hear the gospel? And she said, well, um, I did some things in my life that I was really not ashamed of. And so I felt like I needed God. So I went to church. He goes, okay, great, great. So that sounds good. So what was it that when you did those things, that made you feel like you were deeply hurting and ashamed, and thus you thought maybe it was God? (laughs) Well... But your friend, did, 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 did your, don't you have a friend, your roommate, don't, hasn't, they didn't think to do some of those things? She said yes. But they don't feel that sense of shame or that deep hurt that makes them turn to God. How come you did and they don't? And she didn't. She said, well, I think I'm, maybe I have this sense that I need God, otherwise I'm not going to quite make it because I don't have enough strength in my life to face those kinds of things. She said, oh, okay, okay. okay." And then he goes, okay. Remember, he's on his knees while he's asking this question. Why is it that you feel this sense of deep weakness and your roommate doesn't, and that's why you turn to God? And then then she said, then, well, maybe I have... And she stopped in the middle of her question, in the middle answering the question. And Keller was listening to this, and he realized the only place this goes is maybe I'm, I have some kind of humility in me. Some, that my roommate lacks. And I'm somehow better than her. And that's why I went to church. And she stopped in the middle of answering that question because she realized where this is going. <laughs> if you keep... Going all the whys, why did you do that? And then why did you choose this? And then what made you go do this? And if you really actually, I don't know if you've ever done this exercise. I have done this exercise. And it was, it was, when Keller started telling the story, I was like, oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> because if you keep doing this, at some point, you will get to a boast. Some little spark of humility in you that's not in your unbelieving friend or neighbor or relative. Some little spark of knowing or intelligence or insight or character superiority, which is, you know, that's your boast. And as soon as she stopped, she realized, oh my goodness, that can't be true. And this is the BS in all of us. I've actually, I've, um, as a pastor, and especially being, you know, this, this doctrine of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard one for a lot of us to, uh, to swallow. Right? And I wrestle with this as a young man, too. And, but I've had a number of young people say this to me when, they, when you know, we were reading a passage, and it'll say something about predestination, or it's like, it seems pretty clear what the implication is. And then they'll ask me this question, so pastors, is, is, I'm like, well, of course it's true. And then they go, and I, I, my instincts are not to start arguing intellectually. I usually do something like what R.C. Sproul did, too. And you know, I've asked this question many, many times. 
I've asked young people and old, I said, when you trusted in Jesus, or was it because you chose him? I asked them that. that. Did you, you chose him? Did you sit there and go, I, you know, you like figured it out that Jesus is the right answer, and so you chose him. Is that how it happened? You know what they all say? It's, it's amazing. Whether they are Calvinists or not, they all say this. They're like, no, that's not how it happened. It's like, I had no clue. I was pretty bad. A whole series of things had to happen before me to get a clue. Or, and some, one of, one of the, I remember this young, young, um, young man that I, I pastored, he said, oh, no, that's not how it happened. He said, Jesus up and called me. <laughs> because I was clueless. Jesus up and called me. And then I knew. I said, exactly. I said, I said welcome to Calvinism. <laughs> Salvation by grace. That's part one. Versus boasting which is the normal following the devil agenda, which people don't know they're following the devil through that. You don't know you're following the devil through that, but you are. Because hmm. that's not how we follow Jesus. Now let me go to part two. The implications of the salvation by grace are vast. Okay, I mean, it is vast. It forms whole new kinds of communities and cultures. You can't, have a, you can't build some kind of religious kind of... Because it's not a religiousness thing. It, it's, it's, it's a powerful piece of illumination in the mind and the heart. And by the way, that illumination dims out. You can remember this in your head, but then you start going toward the boasting in our hearts. We do that all the time. But the, these implications are just vast of what happens. And one of the important implications is, is how we treat other people who don't believe in Jesus. Um, who may even have behaviors that we find dangerous, even disturbing, maybe even gross or offensive, who have ideas and doctrines. Are you kidding? Kidding? Come on. Hmm? But one of the ways that you know that grace has gone deep inside of you is when you meet with these other people, the boast is gone. (laughs) Or at least it's dissipating. It's dissipated enough that you, instead of saying, I'm up here as a Christian, up here, and you're down there, non-Christian, with your wrongness. Instead, you're coming down. And not, it's, it's not, you're not even an equal. You're starting to come below them. And you're starting to look at them. And you start seeing them in ways in which they're better than you. You start seeing qualities in them which are admirable. And they're even better, they're even better than, than the way you and your family does it. And you know what? That, that's true. That's, that's the honest goodness of it. The fact is, despite the fact that people are depraved, and even what the, the theologians say, totally depraved, that doesn't mean there's not actually genuine flashes of goodness in them. Right? And oftentimes, there's flashes of goodness among non-Christians and that are better than among the Christians. I mean, come on. That's just honest. And we can't go around acting like that's not true. Like, we have to, if, you're, if, we, if we have to act like and pretend that all this stuff, we got all our act together and we're these good, then that means our salvation is by works. And if we're these insecure people that always have to be these goody Christians, then, then our boast is in our works. But actually, if you can be utterly free to know that we were dead and only by Jesus. Then you can look at yourself and say, okay, on this I'm pretty bad. When it comes to money, I'm really greedy. (laughs) On my parents, um, on the kids, I'm a total control freak. And if they don't get good grades, gosh. But And I have non-Christian friends. They're more generous than me. The better to the poor. I have non-Christian friends who are who are much more at ease in the way they parent their children, and it shows their kids are. Gosh, look at their kids; they're better off than my kids. And when we can begin to do that, guess what's happening? Look, there's a book that I've been reading that I want to share with you. Um, it's called American Grace, which is very interesting. To, I know it's a really fat book. 
I like fat books. <laughs> um, I actually had no idea it was going to be this fat, because I, I heard about this book. It's a famous book, at least it's a famous book in the nerdy circles that I like. And um, I looked it up on Amazon. I was like, cool, I'm going to get this book. And then when it showed up, I was like, whoa, <laughs> heavy. <laughs> I was like, this is going to take some time. Um, this, here's a book, American Grace, How Religion Divides Us and Unites Us. Very interesting. How Religion uni- Divides Us and Unites Us. And it was written by these two guys. One guy's named Robert Putnam. The other guy's name is David Campbell. And Putnam and Campbell are two of our really smart, brilliant people in our society. So um, what are their credentials? Putnam is a professor at Harvard. He's a professor in the Kennedy School of Government. So he, he trains the future leaders of the world, because leaders of the world come to Kennedy School of Government. Okay, So that's who, who, who Putnam is. And David Campbell is at University of Chicago um, in the political science department. And he is, I think he has chaired endowed chair there. So these guys got together. And actually, it's a very intriguing book. Um, if you've heard from, there are certain famous atheists that came out and that said, Religion just poisons everything, and we just divide, and everybody hates one another if you, just, if you just become religious. And they studied American culture, and one of the things that they do as professors, one a professor of government and one a professor of political science, what they're doing is they're looking at the health of democracy. That's what they're doing. <laughs> and one of the things that's very clear is that if people don't know how to treat their neighbors with a certain kind of kindness and peace, you know what happens in democracy? It implodes. When democracy implodes, you know what happens? It doesn't, when, when we lose democracy, we go toward monarchy and usually a bad kind, some kind of tyranny. Some kind of tyranny arises in our society. And we in America, we cherish freedom. And so there are smart people who study our society and make sure that we have a healthy society so that the health of our democratic republic as a nation and we keep our freedoms. But there have been certain very famous atheists who have been arguing religion just poisons everything. Christianity, Islam, it's all the same. It's just that the more religious you are, it just poisons everything. So what we need to do is just get more secular. And what these guys did was they studied uh, American society and you know what they said? They came to the conclusion that's wrong. So this is a, a big 500-page, actually 500-page argument against these atheists who are saying religion poisons everything. And, and by the way, these guys are not Christians. So it's not like some Christian with an axe to grind. He's like, I've got to prove that the Bible is right. He's going to, to, to study American culture and politi- political science and all this stuff and then try to show this. These are not Christians. So Putnam, and they even they, they, they put their cards on the table and they say what their, 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 their religious faith positions are. Putnam, it's pretty interesting. Putnam grew up in a Christian Methodist home, although I suspect he went to, there's a lot of Methodist churches who, that aren't very biblical and whose doctrine, has, quite frankly, has gone bad. I mean, I don't mean to be mean toward Methodists, but that's just true. Right? And I suspect he grew up in one of those kind of Methodist churches. And then when he grew older, he fell in love with a Jewish woman, and he converted to Judaism, so Putnam considers himself a Jew, even though I don't think he's ethnically Jewish, which is interesting, right? And then this guy, um, Campbell, Campbell's Mormon. Mormonism is not Christianity, by the way. A lot of people think it's a version of Christianity. It's not. They do not believe in Jesus the way we believe in salvation by grace, all this stuff. They do not believe in that. So these two guys got together. They studied American culture, and in this book, they had two important takeaways that I want to share with you. Number one, religion does not poison everything. Religion does divide, and for exactly some of the reasons I I mentioned to you, the boasting issue. And they they mention that too, although they don't cite Ephesians chapter 2. They talk about that dynamic of like, I'm better, and they talk about that. But they also concluded religion... This is very interesting to me. When they say religion, that's code word, by the way, for Christianity. Because in America, what is the dominant religious influence in America where people are really practicing their faith? Well, it's Christianity. Come on. I mean, the vast majority of the people that we would call religious in America, 
I mean, if you, they even give you the numbers. Uh, what's the percentage of, of people who, who are, are, are Muslim or Buddhist? I mean, it's like 2%. Who are, uh, who are the, what's the percentage of Jews in America? 2%. What's the people who consist of evangelical Christian? Now, evangelical Christian, by the way, has nothing to do with being Republican. I mean, I, I hate the, 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 political, um, the, the, the political coloring of how people perceive Christianity. Evangelical just means of the gospel. And belonging to the Bible, the gospel as the Bible presents it. That's all even, so that's when, when we, people say they're an evangelical Christian, that's all it should mean, that's all it historically has meant. And so, you know what, what percentage of Americans self-identify as an evangelical Christian? 30%. 30%. 3 out of 10. Out of 300 million plus people in America identify themselves as an evangelical Christian. And then they give you another um, number. Um, what percentage of Americans call themselves Catholic? So Catholicism is also a form of Christianity. We have certain very kind of sharp disagreements with them, particularly with respect to the Bible and authority and the Pope, etc. Right? But nonetheless, Catholics profess in a Trinitarian God. They believe in the Bible. <laughs> they believe salvation is through Jesus Christ, etc. So it is... Uh, it is it is a legitimate form of Christianity, even though, yes, we do have dis deep disagreements. You know what percentage of people call themselves Catholic in America? 25%. 55% of Americans subscribe to some form of Christianity. And even if you just chop that number in half, so then they say, of, the, of these people, a certain percentage of them go to church regularly and practice their faith and their part of a community where they're influenced by faith. And so, you know, and, and they, the, the number may surprise you. You know what percentage of Americans say they go to church every week? It's actually pretty high. Something like 25%. 25%. And, um, and then the, and the percentage of Americans say they go to church at least once a month? You know what percentage that is? It's like 40 Two out of five Americans. I know that sounds kind of weird because that's not the case around here in our city. In our city, it's, it's probably less than 10%. But in America, something like 40% of Americans at least go to church at least once a month, and 25% go every week. And then these guys study these people, and you know what they... So this is the first takeaway that I want to share with you. The people who practice their faith and then enter a community... Based upon their faith, you know what they are they better neighbors, more kind to their neighbors, more generous to the poor? Do they volunteer more, not only even in the church, but outside the church? So they even studied, they studied non-religious volunteerism. <laughs> they volunteer more for Little League, more for their school boards. They they contribute to the local charities, Boy Scouts, all these things. They studied all these things. And you know what they said? People who go to church. They do more. I mean, it's, it's not even close. They go, they, they, go, they go, it's actually not even close. They give more money. They donate more blood. They're just better neighbors. So one of their pushbacks is people who actually practice their faith, they're better neighbors. So in, and then here's the second one. This is, this is the part that's fascinating to me. And I think that's true, and to me that's not surprising at all. And I've actually been around people who are highly secular and um, when you start getting closer to them, you find out they never give any of their money to anybody, or very little, very little, nothing close to 10% a tithe, which is what we teach in the church. They volunteer very little of their time. It's pretty normal for a lot of Christians that I know. They volunteer even outside the church. A lot of you do. I know you do. And you do it willingly, but you don't do it because we, I make you. You do. So I know all these things, are, this, none of that surprised me. But here's the second thing that was, was, was incredible to me. The second takeaway that I want to share with you. He says, one of the reasons why America does have this very healthy democratic republic. I don't know if you know this. Around the rest of the world, they, we all, they look at the, America as a really weird society because they know that America has lots of different races, lots of different cultures, lots of different religious worldviews, all mixed and mashed together, and yet we don't fight and hate each other. Well, that's not entirely true. We do. We fight and hate each other through the airwaves and you know, through the, through the di political discourse. But actually, on the regular normal street, people eat together. 
They don't hate their neighbors. And apparently that's very unusual around the world and throughout history. And the way Putnam and Campbell put it is, one of the reasons why America has this stronger and better kind of, of, uh, of peace in our society is not despite the fact that we're all mixed together. It's because. And we're not kind of generally like, well, that's the other people's neighborhood, and we just kind of go by them. No, we're, they're intimately in our lives. He says, in virtually every American's life, even someone who has faith, they have someone in their life, right in their family, right in their coworkers, their next-door neighbors, someone that they're close to. Now, we're not even just talking about someone who's, someone that they're close to, or at least close enough, and when you start getting close to them, you can see them right away, and you realize they're not evil people that I hate, but there's, they're people. And you start seeing into them, and they have virtues, and there are things you can admire, there's things you disagree with, and I don't like that about you, but hey, I do like these. And it's hard to start to just hate them or to pull apart from them if they're in your lives. And this is, when I read that, it really moved me. It says, because there are people who deeply disagree with you in your, right in the scope of the closeness of your life, that actually makes us better neighbors. And that is how the book ends, by the way, I'm just telling you. And they call that American grace, non-Christians. This is, this is the grace upon America. Very interesting to me. And here's a, here's a takeaway I want to offer to you. Look, if we're going to be the type of church that I believe God wants us to be for our city and for our society, we need to become very good neighbors indeed. Neighbors even far above the standards of Putnam and Campbell, of democracy. Because if, and, and the pathway to that, guess what, is this. Grace, graced, and your boasting has been washed away. I think you will only be, some of you think, okay, you know, when I wasn't a Christian, I used to like, get drunk and hang out with my non-Christian friends, and I need to get away from that because that's dirty stuff. And that's true, okay? You know, maybe you need to get away. If, if you have friends who influence you towards certain kinds of sins, maybe you need a break. But over time, I hope that as you get more and more of God's grace in you through the gospel, what will begin to happen is you'll say, actually, it's, you won't be afraid of your non-Christian friends or relatives and you, you actually want them to be in your life. And instead of borrowing your life and you start looking down, you start doing this thing. You don't even look at them as an equal. You start being lower than them. And you'll start to admire them. And you start to see qualities in them which you, are even better than you. And it's perfectly fine for you to say that. You're like, actually, you're better than me. Why? Because your deepest identity is from grace, not by boasting. It's from Jesus. And then you could be lower than them and you could serve them with kindness and gentleness and meekness. And, here's the, and what's the opposite of boasting? Humility. Hmm. Let me go to the last portion of my message. <clears throat> the world badly is looking for this kind of people. They have no idea how to get it. And every now and then there are Christians who are actually like this. And you know what? They're really weird. There's lots of people in our lives. They don't want to have, in their mind, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Or they think God, church, mm, that stuff makes me nervous. Okay? But they would love to be around a person would listen, who would admire their really true good qualities, and would have mercy and understanding on their failings, even their pride. And the acid test of a community of where grace is being really powerful, where our gospel is going out, is, is that Christians are odd, okay? When you're really graced, you have Two qualities that don't seem to go together. One is confidence. 
If you're a Christian, you have confidence in Jesus. I'm confident that Christianity is right, and I have confidence. You have a sense of confidence. Not insecurity about them, because you, don't have, you, you can meet somebody who's richer than you, and you don't have to be in, insecure. You can meet a person who's skinnier than you and prettier than you, and you don't have to feel insecure, because your boast isn't in those things. You can sort of have confidence. But usually, most people have confidence. You know, where, where do we get our confidence? From our boast. If the boast is going strong, I'm confident. I've got lots of money in the bank account. I'm a strong person. Hey, I'm chopping up in that right person. I'm, hey, I'm skinnier than you. You can hang out with me because then I'll shine. My skinniness will shine out over, over your lack of skinniness. Okay? I, I know that's really rude, and I'm sorry if, for some of you who wrestle with your, your weight. I'm not trying to hurt you in any kind of way. But this is the, the BS of how we think. That's where our confidence comes from. And then we look down on others. So usually confidence doesn't go with humility. Deep humility. But if you meet people who have been deeply graced through the gospel, there's confidence and there's a strong lowliness. There's a lowliness which isn't kind of like, a, oh, I'm such a weak... No, not that kind of lowliness. It's a lowliness which is strong and which can serve. And you know where I think is the real acid test of this? The real acid test is when a Christian meets somebody who, in every worldly way, I got a boast worldly and you don't. All my boasts are higher than your boasts in a worldly way. But when, when the Christian encounters a set of people that have no boasts in the world, and yet the Christian does not go, oh, I'll give you money because you know, I'm a good Christian and you know, I'll give to charities and, and I'll help you and you're a charity case. That's not gospeled. That's just the normal, bad righteousness, the way of the devil, quite frankly. <laughs> a spoiled kind of righteousness. But when the Christian meets the person who has no boast relative to them in comparison, and yet will come alongside and even lower themselves, that's when you know God <laughs> is in the room. It only comes through Christ. And by grace of the cross. And let me tell you something. It's happening in our church. When I see this in our church, it makes me want to cry, actually. Because I know God. God's around. I don't get excited. Well, I try not to get excited if it's the offering goes up or if there's lots of people in the room or if the band is really great. I, don't, I try not to even get excited if I preach really well and your, your face looks all excited and interested in my message. That's a, nice, that's a nice indicator, but it's actually not even that. When I see this, I know God. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit and we're being deeply graced. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you two places where I, it's just so obvious in our church. If you ever go to this Harangjigi worship and hang out with those people, that worship service, that's for people who are developmentally disabled. On every worldly boast, they're lower than us, so to speak. And yet, if you see the people who will go and love them, it's all by grace. It's only God. And I've been out to Bishop. That's the other place where it's so obvious in our church. I mean, you know, I'm not making this up. We'll go toward the reservation, and you'll meet a bunch of people who are school dropouts or went to jail, were drug addicts, come from families that were all broken up, and they're never going to you know, have much money. They're going to have poverty. So on every worldly measure, we have better boasts than them. And I have watched people in our church cross the racial and ethnic divide, the socioeconomic divide, young people and old people from the Korean ministry side and the English ministry side with the children, everyone. I've watched them, and not every single person, of course, but I've watched them do this and with no boast, genuinely serve and come alongside of Paiutes. And when I've watched that, I know it's a miracle. And it is my... I'm, I'm not saying that to boast about bishop or our Sarangjigi ministry. I'm just saying, that's Jesus. And in your life, one of the things I like to tell all the people who go to bishop is, San Jose is our reservation. It is. And there's lots of people in your life that are just like the people in 
Does having degree ministry or in, in, um, in, in, in bishop, except their problem is their boast. It's the boast in their religion or in their money, etc. And we can have mercy upon them for their boasting. And we can offer them Christ and grace. And if we'll be like this, we'll be a very strange and beautiful kind of community. And even when people who aren't interested in Jesus, if they meet us, they're going to go, you're very weird people. You're actually a very weirdly wonderful people. Okay, now tell me about your God. That's what I long to see happen in our church. I think it's starting to happen. It's going to happen. And regardless of so-called how successful our church ever gets in any kind of worldly measures, when this happens, I know Jesus is alive and real. Let's pray. Doctors Putnam and Campbell think, Lord, that there's a certain grace in our culture through the way we Americans interact with those people who deeply disagree with us. And I think that's true, Lord. But they don't know how much grace there is. There's so much. The grace is even deeper than that. And they don't quite know. They think it comes from some source called religion. They think it comes from the social interactions of religious people. But we know, Lord, it comes from you, Jesus. We know it comes from the power of your cross and through the new life of your resurrection and through the presence of your Holy Spirit. And only by the Spirit have you pulled us, you even have predestined us and drawn us and moved us, not by anything of ourselves, not because we were smarter, not because we had some kind of little spark, not because we came from a good family, It was never a spark of our own humility and insight. It was always you, Jesus, and you alone. And so we pray, Lord, make us a really free, freely humble people. Humble even to people who all around us who are boasting, boasting, boasting. We will have only one boast, which has nothing to do with ourselves. It's only you. There's only one thing that I set forward, Christ. And so I pray you turn us into an oddly strange, lowly, humble, yet very confident people. Generous and listening. Humble and meek toward our neighbors and to our cousins. My cousin who's gay and thinks that we hate him. My co-worker who's an atheist. Um, my neighbor who's a Muslim, Lord. All these people I pray that you would bring them into our lives and we would receive them into our lives with grace alone, with Christ alone. You would turn us more and more a deep people by grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.